Before I read my text, I, I want to explain myself. Actually, not all of myself. Uh, I mean, that would take far too long and be far too boring. But um, I, I want to explain at least what I'm up to for the next few weeks um, from the pulpit. I had a thought earlier this week, and then um, I, I guess it was the next day I received an email that kind of confirmed my thought. And uh, the email that I received opened with a quote. The quote was from Nancy Guthrie. She was the woman who spoke at the women's conference, and uh, it's just a sentence, but she made this observation about herself. She said, for too many years, I found that I have um, rushed from Palm Sunday into Easter morning, from palm branches to the empty tomb, without giving my mind and my heart over to thoughtful contemplation of the cross. Um, that was somewhat of a confirmation of a thought that I'd had the previous day. And so I uh, keep that in mind as I try to explain what I'm doing. Um, guys, w- without, without debate, the, the emphasis of the early church's preaching, that is the, the apostolic message, the apostolic kerygma, it's called in theological circles, the emphasis was not on the cross. It was on the resurrection. Um, and, and that gets played out in all of the sermons that you see included in the book of Acts. Uh, you can see that their emphasis is not on the cross, it's on, it's on the resurrection. However, the resurrection cannot stand by itself. Because as you know, it's a resurrection from death. A death um, that was inflicted upon Jesus Christ in the, in the, 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 the most egregious miscarriage of justice in the history of mankind. But the, the, the resurrection was the thing that um, attested or affirmed the efficacy of the cross. So the, the point is, those two things kind of, not kind of, but do go hand in hand. Uh, and that was the message that the early church hurled at her pagan culture. Um, a, a message that didn't stop at what appeared to be a defeat but went on to proclaim this great victory of an empty tomb. And, um, you know, no other religion can say that. Um, uh, Buddhist tomb is not empty. Muhammad's tomb is not empty. But Christ's is. Now, guys, as you know, I think, the last Sunday of this month, um, four weeks from today, is Easter. We, uh, along with the rest of the church universal, will, will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ um, as our substitute in death and our hope in life. But to try and avoid what Nancy Guthrie said was a problem that she faced, what I want to do is use the next four Sundays, the the next four Sundays that lead up to Israel, lead up to Easter, not Israel, lead up to Easter, I want to use these four Sundays um, to prepare us for Easter. What I'm hoping is that by our 
this little brief series of four sermons that will, it will enable us to come back in here on Easter Sunday morning with a, with a greater sense of celebration and gusto to our worship. Now, to do that, that is, to prepare for Easter, I'm going to spend four weeks on the same parable. It's, um, of course, recorded in Luke 16, and I, I hope you're there. But um, it's a parable that is, um, I would have to say it's, it's very unpopular um, and widely unknown. It's a parable that confronts us with all things eternal in general, and then it confronts us specifically with the resurrection, um, which we will look at three Sundays from today uh, as kind of just an item, but then we'll come back the next Sunday and focus on the resurrection um, with the whole service. So, uh, that's what I'm up to. Um, I'm hoping that a four-week look at this parable, which is a doozy, will prepare us. Uh, to better enjoy the victory that is ours, won for us, gained for us by our sin-bearing substitute. Okay? Now, let's read the parable. It's in Luke chapter 16. It starts with verse 19, and I'll read uh, to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 16 at verse 19. Here we go. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that endures forever. Guys, very candidly, there is no story more disturbing in the New Testament than than this one. You know, the Bible contains numerous warnings um, against hell. But only here are we given a description of, of a person suffering in hell. Now, who wants to discuss that? Who, who volunteers to lead that discussion? You know, um, I, I guess that would be me. But, you know, guys, um, I'm just like, I want to be loved just like you want to be loved. And um, bringing up subjects like these in, in, in mixed company uh, doesn't normally um, aid that, you know? Um, who, who wants to be shown a scene like this? But I hope you'll keep in mind that um, I, I'm hoping to use this parable um, in such a way that it will make Christ's victory over death all the more sweet for us when we are together on Easter Sunday morning. Now, I got to stop right here and I got to show you something, a couple of things, just to kind of um, give you a little backdrop um, or background for this parable. I need to clarify something and it's, it's very important. We're going to start with a, a real important issue, guys, because your translations differ over a word that's, and a key word it is, um, a word found in verse 23. Um, for instance, if you have a, a NIV or a King James, you will find the word in verse 23 is hell. But if you've got a, a new King James or an English standard or a new American standard, you'll find that the word is Hades. Now, um, guys, the Greek is indeed the word Hades. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a poetic term that refers to the abode of the dead or the abode of the departed. So why is it that every commentator that writes on this, on this parable uh, concludes that this is a scene from hell? Well, there's three or four reasons. First of all, the New Testament never uses this word Hades in association with believing people. It only uses that word Hades in, in association with unbelieving people. Um, that's one of the reasons. Secondly, or, or a second reason, um, in Matthew chapter 11, you find the word Hades again. It's in verse 23, and it's clearly, let me read it to you. It's clearly a reference to hell where Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Do you see the contrast there? Are you going to go to heaven? No, no. <clears throat> You're going to go to the opposite of heaven. And the term used there is, is the one that we're talking about, Hades. And then, guys, thirdly, um, if you read this parable, it's kind of hard to miss that uh, it is very plainly describing a place of torment for the dead. Now, to confuse matters a bit more, there's another Greek term. 
that is used and is translated to hell. And by the way, it seems to be Jesus' word of preference. Uh, You find it in Matthew chapter 5. You find it in Matthew 23. It's the word, you've heard this before, Gehenna. The Valley of Hinnom. Uh, The Valley of Hinnom was was a location outside of Jerusalem that was a garbage dump. And in that garbage dump, there was this continual fire uh, as, the, as the fire consumed the trash. Now, with all that in mind, this is a parable. And in a parable, you would expect the language and the terminology to be more abstract than you would in historical narrative. So what I'm saying is, I, along with all those other commentaries, and I think... I mean, if you read the, the parable fairly, um, interpretively, have concluded that this is a depiction of hell. Uh, the only such depiction found anywhere in the Bible. So I, I hope I've explained at least that difference in the term and that we can move on from there. Now, there's one other thing that I, I want to make clear, and then we'll, we'll kind of jump in in earnest, but... This is a parable that's addressed to the Pharisees. Um, that's very clear. You see it in verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, etc., etc. Jesus is addressing this, par- this parable to the Pharisees. And having said that, we immediately have a difficulty. And the difficulty is this. The Pharisees had all kinds of problems. I mean, they had all kinds of evil. But prodigal, excessive, sumptuous living was not one of them. Um... Their manner of life as a Pharisee was often austere. And and some of them were just downright ascetics, rigid ascetics. Um, So you've got to understand this. That the primary intention of this parable is not to teach the evils of abusing wealth and uh, the hard-heartedness towards the poor. That's not the intention of the parable. Those are just the specifics. Those are ways in which the the real sin um, manifests itself. And the real sin that is is being attacked here by this parable is the sin of unbelief. Um, Invariably, ladies and gentlemen, when, when, when when you refuse to acknowledge the existence of the unseen, the eternal, then invariably you, you live a life that's consumed with the seen, with the temporal. And um, in, in good King James language, you shut up your bowels of compassion so that you can spend more of that money on yourself. But this is a parable. It is a rebuke of unbelief and the value system that invariably accompanies unbelief. But secondarily, it gives us a glimpse into the fearful consequences of unbelief. Guys, this is the only place in the Bible that describes the thoughts and the emotions and the words the feelings of an unconverted person in hell. Jesus, as it were, draws back this curtain between now and, and the hereafter. And he, he, he allows us to look in just ever so briefly 
And we learn a few things, not as much as we'd like to know, but we learn a few things about, about hell. We learn that there is the existence of memory, for instance. We learn that there's some, some kind of state of consciousness. Um, but because of this subject matter, this is the most unknown, unpopular um, parable in all of the New Testament. There is something in this parable from which our minds and our hearts instinctively recoil. There is a, there is a reluctance on our parts, I think, to consider things like these. Because in, in my opinion, in, in all the Bible, there's no scene as disturb, quite as disturbing as is this one. Now, that all said by way of introduction, um, let me tell you that, at least in the opening half of this parable, what you get is a study in contrasts. You have a hero, you have a villain. And what you get in these early, early verses of this parable is a contrast between those two. And the hero and the villain, of course, are representing um, belief and unbelief, or a value system, one value system and another value system. Those are being contrasted as this, as this parable unfolds. Let me, let me give you an example and, and show you what I mean. Look first with me at the villain. Guys, um, some of you have heard this parable preached before, and you've heard him called, his, you've heard him named, his name is Dives. That is, not in the, that is not in the text. In fact, the word Dives is just the Latin term for rich. So if you, if you think this man's name, he's never named. That's important because the other guy is, and we'll get to that in a minute. But um, he's just called a rich man. But I want you to notice uh, how he's described, this, this description of the rich man. The first thing that we're told is that he was clothed in purple. Well, gang, um, the use of dyes, D-Y-E-S, in antiquity was reserved for the wealthy. You remember in Acts 16, there was this woman, Lydia. She was a seller of purple. Well, the use of dyes at all was reserved for the wealthy, but, but purple... Purple was a, was a color of royalty. Well, this guy is dressed in royalty, royal colors. And, um, and, and then the second thing we're told is that um, this purple garment was a piece of fine linen. Not cotton, not, not wool, but fine linen. Money was no object when it came to... Um, to making the, the, the flesh comfortable. Keep reading. Uh, and who feasted sumptuously. Now, that is he ate well. <laughs> um, and read just a little bit further every day. Not just occasionally, not just on holidays. Every day. Dressed in purple, fine linen, ate really well every day. It's, it's a picture of a playboy type, uh, wine, women, and song, flamboyant living, that kind of thing, that kind of guy. But, but notice in the description, it, it, he is not accused of any gross breach of, of, of the law. He's not called a rapist or a murderer or a blasphemer. We're not told that he stole to get his wealth. Uh, we're not told um, that he got it unjustly. There is not a court in all of America that would put this man on trial. 
But you know what, guys? Sometimes it's not what you do, but it's what you don't do that reveals who you are. And you see that he doesn't use any of that wealth to relieve any of the suffering that's around him. Um, he, was, he was a man about town. He was a man about whom his, his fellow citizens spoke well. People sought his company. He uh, was perhaps even envied and, and well-known. Um, he, um, his name was known in the city, but it's just not given in the parable. Whereas the hero is given a name. Lazarus. Now, um, first of all, folks, no other character in any parable that Jesus ever tells is ever given a name. That's significant. This guy is given a name. Um, and I, I think you'll agree that there could not be any starker contrast than the one that I'm, you're about to see in the text. Um, and, and I think the reason that Jesus makes it, he, that he goes to such extremes to make such a contrast is to show how violently different is the value system of the believer as opposed to the value system of a non-believer. But notice how the heroes described. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Now, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, I know that your texts say that he was laid at that gate. Um, he was, there he was on the front porch of the rich man's house. But the Greek word there is the word balo. And I've mentioned that word before. Balo, what does it sound like? It sounds like a ball. What do you do with a ball? You throw it. The Greek word balo means to throw, not to lay. What, what, we're, what we find is that the poor man was thrown. He was thrown onto the front porch steps of the rich guy. How long had he laid there? We're not told. But he had, he had been there long enough so that, um, that once the rich guy saw him in, at Abraham's side, he recognized him. And the point is simply that, that the rich guy could not plead ignorance about who this guy, I never saw him. He recognized him. You know, guys, um, in the Bible, there are four kinds of poverty that are mentioned, and only one of those kinds is condemned. It's, a, it's the poverty associated with laziness or being a sluggard. But another kind is a, is a poverty that is brought about by tyranny or, or having been jilted out of your monies by some kind of chicanery. Uh, another kind has to do with a, a vow of poverty, uh, poverty due to righteousness' sake. And then another kind of poverty has to do with a calamity or physical liabilities, which is Lazarus's case. You're told in this text that he's covered with sores. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> covered with sores. He's reduced to a life of suffering and deprivation. The, um, the rich guy was covered with purple and fine linen. Lazarus was covered with sores. He wasn't demanding a meal there in verse 21. 
All he wants is the scraps. You know the stuff that was fit for the garbage can. Just, just crumbs. Just give me that. And even for that, he had to compete with the dogs for that. Um, one feasted sumptuously. The other longs for garbage crumbs. He um, he's cut off from all human sympathy. And he finds sympathy only from the dogs. One of the commentaries <laughs> made the observation that there was a medicinal value on the tongue of a dog. I don't know about that, but um, uh, somebody said it. Anyway, but one of these guys has a host of servants to attend to his every need. And the other guy is attended, he's attended by the dogs. Now, at this point, which one of those would you rather be? If this were the whole story, just the, maybe through verse 21. If this were the whole story, which one of these would you rather be? Well, I mean, that's a pretty easy call, isn't it? I mean, poverty, wealth, I'll choose wealth every time. But the tragic thing, ladies and gentlemen, is that is that Satan has so deceived not just Germantown. He's so deceived. He has so skewed reality. Um, that we sometimes forget that verse 21 is not the end of the story. You know, I've told you this I've used this illustration before, but I, I still love it. Um, you know, one of the guys that's quoted around here quite a bit is a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a genius. I mean, and he's, he's, in, he's got several books. One of them that you really ought to stop and read is, is called Screwtape Letters. It's really an easy read. It's, um, it's a piece of genius. Uh, if you ever read it, you know what I'm talking about. But uh, Screwtape Letters is a book. Uh, It's a a paperback short thing. It's not that long, but um, screw tape represents the devil. And the devil has a nephew whose name is Wormwood. Isn't that a great name? Wormwood. You got got Wormwood up here on earth and screw tape down in hell writing letters. uh, Screw tape's writing the letters to his, his, um, his nephew, Wormwood whose job it is, that is Wormwood's job, is to make sure that a certain Englishman is ushered safely home to his father below. And so Screwtape gives Wormwood all this advice as to how he might accomplish his goal effectively. My favorite quote of all of C.S. Lewis is found in Screwtape letters. In one of those letters from Screwtape. Where Screwtape writes to Wormwood and he says, Your job, Wormwood, is to fix his mind on the stream of things and teach him to call that reality. But never let him ask 
what he means by reality. Fix his mind on the stream of things. And getting to the place that he calls the stream of things reality. But don't ever let him ask. Reality really is. We come to verse 22. And we're told that both of them die. The rich man and Lazarus, they both die. Well, is that all? Well, that's what we're going to look at next week. Uh, that's what we'll spend our time doing next week. But, but for now, um, tell me, how do you define reality? Um, maybe more importantly, who defines reality for you? Where do you get your definitions of reality? For the Christian, of course, our, our source, our sole source, our only source, our divine source is the Lord Jesus. He, he gives us our reality. Who, by the way, is the same one who spoke this parable. And at the center of reality, ladies and gentlemen, at the center of the reality that he talks about is a cross. A cross on which the Prince of Glory died. A cross on which Jesus Christ was crucified in my place. A cross where Jesus Christ represented me and when he was done, he called for our attention by saying, it's finished. Everything's done. It's all paid for. And on that cross, that same Jesus purchases a place in heaven for me. And he offers me that place in heaven as a free gift. And in September of 1970, at the age of 22, I received the gift of eternal life. Have you received the gift of eternal life? Or is your mind fixed on the stream of things which you call reality.
but you have never stopped to ask what reality really is. And Wormwood has done his job well. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not the end of the story, and we'll see that next week. But as for now, have you? Have you received the gift of eternal life? Our Father, I pray that you will make that very um, plain, very simple, very very beautiful. Um, beautiful the way it was to my wife and myself almost 43 years ago. Beautiful like it is to so many in this room who have seen the same, the same beauty and the same Savior. Make it beautiful to others, Father. It's a, it's a beauty that I cannot adequately describe, um, and it's a beauty that must not be missed. So by the intervention um, of your Holy Spirit, cause men to see Cause those who, to, to see it who have not yet seen it. That on that cross is the Prince of Glory. Dying in the place of his people. Dying in the place of sinners. And the realest thing that I could do today. Is to embrace him as my savior. Use that father. Uh, use this parable to remind us of all things eternal and the resurrection in particular. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.